For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how school boards will be distributing the new education funding. Find out why researchers say climate change could be affecting native species and how a little bird gave them a clue. Artist Jim Colby creates an immersive way for people to interact with his music. And visit an exclusive party at Tucson Medical Center where you have to be at least 99 years old to get an invitation. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. After teachers walked off the job last month demanding higher pay and an increased education funding, the state passed a budget that includes a 9% raise for teachers to take effect next year. Lorraine Rivera has been covering this story for Arizona 360, and she joins me now to tell us what the next step will be. Hello, Lorraine. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So they passed the raise, but are these raises guaranteed? So there's definitely more money in the budget for education funding in Arizona. However, ultimately those raises, it's at the discretion of a school board. A lot of people don't understand that school boards have a lot of power in school districts. The reason they do that is because school boards are locally elected people who can make decisions for the communities they serve. This increases per pupil funding. It depends on class size, school size. Ultimately, it's going to be up to the school districts to work with their school boards and decide how to distribute these dollars. Every district is different. They might base those dollars based off of the formula they currently use. So that depends on the employee index, a salary schedule. They could say, let's give everybody an equal amount. It really will be at the discretion of the superintendent and the school boards to make that decision. Spoke with Governor Doug Ducey um, last week, and here's what he had to say. In the state budget, it is in the, the base, and that's how you make it permanent, ongoing, and it becomes part of the inflated dollars. It's the most protected dollars you can have at the state level. The recommendation I have for local districts is just that this money gets to our teachers. That was why the dollars were passed in the first place. Well, budgets are year to year. What happens if Governor Ducey isn't in office next year? Governor Ducey wants to be sure that school districts understand that this is money that's allocated for teachers, and he's hopeful that school boards will follow the spirit of the law. There's actually the Arizona School Boards Association. They're working closely with small school districts all across the state to say, let's follow what the legislature wants. This week, we spoke with Director of Governmental Relations, Chris Cotterman, and um, here's what he thinks. We view the school board as the ultimate decision maker because they're the closest elected official to the community. Um, the members of that community who live there elect those, those members to the school board, and their fundamental job is to make strategic and budgetary decisions for the school district um, based on the resources that are available to them from the state. Are educators saying that they got what they wanted from this deal? It depends who you ask, Mark. Some teachers are happy, others are still uneasy. Moving forward, this is something they have to accept for this school year. A lot of contracts have already been signed for the next academic year. There could be more raises that would be added in an addendum for those contracts that have already been submitted. What teachers, I think, now are focused on is the November election, which it's normally a quiet time during a midterm. But locally, as we know, they can be really exciting. The new hashtag is remember in November. 
Uh, a couple of people that I've spoken with said we should really watch to see who runs for the legislature this year. Will we see some educators throw their name in the hats? Or will we see candidates who are going to focus more on education because they really want to be sure Arizona moves from that bottom spot in per-pupil funding nationally to somewhere higher? There'll be more on this subject this week on Arizona 360 with Lorraine Rivera. You can see it Friday night at 8.30 and Sunday morning at 11 on PBS 6. Thank you for your time, Lorraine. You're welcome, Mark. Hikers and bird watchers have noticed some significant changes in this region recently, including the surprise sighting of a Mexican red warbler on Mount Lemmon. Emily Ellis sat down with Dr. Teresa Crimmins to talk about why we're seeing some of these changes and what they could mean for the future of native plants and animals. Dr. Crimmins is the Associate Director of the USA National Phenology Network, based at the University of Arizona. What is phenology? Phenology is the timing of life cycle events in plants and animals. So it pertains to when things happen, when plants put on their leaves, when different species of plants have their flowers open over the course of the year, when birds migrate, when insects hatch, those kinds of events. So is it sort of related to climate change? Yeah, actually. When plants and animals undergo these different events in their life cycles from year to year has a lot to do with what local environmental conditions are like. Since these events are really cued into the local conditions of the particular year, we can look at whether those things are changing over time in concert with changing underlying conditions like temperatures. So it's kind of like seeing the world's response to climate change, sort of. Exactly. That's exactly why the USA National Phenology Network was established, was to um, grow a network and a pool of data that would enable us to have a better and clearer understanding of how plants and animals and ecosystems are responding to variable and rapidly changing climate conditions. Earlier this month, the Arizona Daily Star reported that a Mexican red warbler was spotted on Mount Lemmon. Um, And I did a little reading about it, and apparently that's hundreds of miles from its kind of normal migration range. Um, So I wanted to ask, why do you think this bird was so far from home? You're right that that species occurs down in Mexico, and it has a pretty limited distribution at high elevations, too. It's generally considered an altitudinal migrant, which means that it follows temperature conditions that are suitable for it on a seasonal basis just by flying either moving upslope or downslope in elevation, but typically not across large geographic ranges. I'm not really sure, but one of the things that could be at play is that uh, as conditions are changing rapidly, species have choices. They can, they can stay put and try to tolerate the change. Um, they can try to adapt and and tolerate those changes, or they can move. And this may be a situation where the bird opted to to move to try and seek out uh, more suitable conditions. Um, Do you think we're going to start seeing more species from Mexico or from other regions moving into Arizona in the future as climate changes? You know, it's hard to know, but it's entirely possible. We definitely see that pattern in other species and in other parts of the world where as temperatures are increasing, conditions are, are becoming unsuitable in, in the locations where certain species of plants or animals are typically found and they are 
being forced to seek out new and different locations where conditions are suitable. In 2009, you co-authored a study that tracked the range of flowering plants in the Catalinas. Could you tell me a little more about that study? Sure. So in that study, my husband, Michael Crimmins, and I worked with an individual, David Bertelson, who has been hiking in the Catalinas on an approximately weekly basis since 1983. And he's been tracking when he sees different species of flower. And in that particular study, we evaluated a 20-year data set, and we did find about a quarter of the species are being seen in flower at higher elevations now than they had been at the start of his study. And is that just because it's getting warmer? It definitely looks like it's tied to increasing temperature conditions. It kind of um, makes me wonder what's going to happen to the species at you know, the very top of these elevations. Are they just going to disappear? They have the choice to, yes, either <laughs> try to move to a different location where conditions are more suitable. That's much easier for, for animals to accomplish than plants. They have the choice to try to rapidly adapt, or we may see them disappear. How can um, hikers and bird watchers and sort of citizen scientists help researchers like yourself track these changes? The USA National Phenology Network runs that program, and we invite any and all folks who might be interested in helping us understand when plants and animals are undergoing those kinds of changes in their backyard. Dr. Teresa Kremen spoke with Emily Ellis, an intern at AZPM and a student in the University of Arizona School of Journalism. If you'd like more information about how you can help track ecological changes in your backyard, visit www.usanpn.org. Tucson artist and musician Jim Colby says he feels all sounds are inherently also music. Colby was the recipient of a 2017 Artist Research and Development Grant from the Arizona Commission on the Arts. In this story, produced by Andrew Brown, we'll hear how an installation that resulted from that grant helps to prove Colby's theory. My name is Jim Colby. We are in Exploded View Gallery, my sound installation called Saxorcism. We're in a, a, a golden cube uh, surrounded by streamers that has two glowing balloons in it, and one is red and one is blue, and then there's these sounds coming at us from all four corners of the, of the cube. Every sound you hear is actually a, a saxophone sound. It's, it's like a highly modulated saxophone, like a couple saxophones playing together or just one saxophone sound. It's all, all sounds I recorded from saxophones. If you change the position of the balloons, it changes different parameters. There's a camera that tracks the position hanging from the ceiling and it goes into a program called Max MSP that changes visual information into numbers or sonic information. I was just walking by and I heard some sounds. My name is Anna. I'm from Russia and I'm an art student. I like the light effects. Yeah. 
It's a very, very strange sensation. It's like in between nightclub and something really intimate. Yeah, I like it. I just saw that there is a so the sandwich board sign sitting outside, so I just walked in. Hi, I'm Simon Peter Miller. It's like uh, gold tinsel, kind of reminiscent of something from like a middle school or high school dance in the 90s with really, you know, cool looking glowing balloons. Like they, one's blue, one's red, and it's cool. It's almost like, do you take the red pill or the blue pill? I'll take the red pill. Yeah, so there's a couple different scenes. Uh, this is like the rhythmic one, and each the the X and the Y position of the balloon usually change different characteristics. And in this one, it's changing the pitch of the different sounds. Let me move this one. And then also depending, uh, it, it changes the complexity of the rhythm, like how many times the beat is hitting. This is like the party one. Now we're in a rave. It's pretty cool. It's like, oh, wait for the drop. Oh, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> the beat comes back. I don't know. The saxophone's also inherently funny. It is just an instrument that I have played since I was very young and I have a kind of torrid relationship with. I was more into uh, playing the Star Wars theme song at that time, but I think some of my favorite saxophone players are Ornette Coleman, uh, Eric Dolphy, but I was never as good as them, so this is kind of my way of being good at the saxophone and something else I'm good at, which is maybe using this program. But I'm going to make a record called Saxorcism under my producer alias Rough Idol. But the next thing I'm probably going to do is uh, I have a cumbia band called Vox Urbana I play in, and we're going to put out a record pretty soon. And we're going to play at a place called Cannes Deli on June 1st. So um, that's the next time you can catch me actually play music. I will play the saxophone at that show. Andrew Brown also took photographs of the Saxorcism installation. You can find them on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Sales of happy birthday cards for those over 100 years of age are growing, and so are the numbers on the cards. Census data says that while there are more than 40 million Americans over the age of 70, fewer than 65,000 are centenarians. Every year, the Pima Council on Aging presents a tribute to the eldest members of our community, and the 2018 gathering was held on May 4th at Tucson Medical Center. There were 48 people there, representing ages 99 to 109, accompanied by family, friends, and caregivers. I spoke to a few of them about their remarkable lives. So first of all, just tell me your name, please. Irma Kiros. How long have you been in Arizona? I'm a native. 
So how long would that be now? It'll be 100 in December. What questions do people ask you when they find out that you are currently 99 years old? What do I do to live this long? <laughs> That's the first question everybody asks me. And do you have an answer? I don't know what to tell them. I used to dance practically all the time. I danced for about 30 years, and I drank a glass of wine <laughs> for about 30 years before dinner. Outside of that, I just don't know anything else. How important is thinking about or remembering the past to you now? I think a lot of the past. I had a beautiful past. I lived at a ranch for 25 years, and I, I loved it there. I was real happy. We have cotton and cattle. I worked hard, but it didn't seem to hurt me. <laughs> I think it helped me. I'm Anna Rutherford. I live here in Tucson. I grew up in Missouri. I was born in uh, Lewistown, Missouri. And uh, my husband and I were teachers in Lexington, Missouri. For how long? I taught 25 years. Why are you here today? How did you get an invite to this room? Uh, a friend of mine sent in my name. I don't take the newspaper, so I didn't know anything about it. <laughs> well, I was brought up never to ask a woman her age, but we're in a situation where I feel like I have to. So can you tell us how old you are? I'm 101. I was born March the 3rd, 1917. If you could go back and give yourself advice as a young person, do you have anything you'd want to say? I don't know. Um, I think everyone should get a good education, and um, they should support their president. Uh, they should abide by the laws, never tell lies. <laughs> well, these were things I bet you would, would do anyway. You don't need to go back and tell yourself that, do you? Well, I've tried. <laughs> when people ask you what your secret for a long life is, do you have an answer? Well, I used to say, no pesticides. Lately, I said, don't die. <laughs> I grew up on a farm. I was on a farm for 20 years, and we didn't know the name of a pesticide. We'd never heard of one. And I think we have too many chemicals entering our body today. We know Irma has ranching in her background. You, you grew up on a farm, and she did ranching for 25 years. Oh. Maybe there's something to that kind of life, huh? Oh, yes. yes. Definitely. Farm life is the best. Well, thank you for your time. It was lovely to meet you. Thank you very much. I hope you have a good day. Thank you. So uh, tell us who you are. Gordon Cheeseman. What did you do for a living? Well, I was born and raised on a farm, and then I uh, went into the radio business uh, on the technical side of WDAN in Danville, Illinois. And then uh, I was there a couple of years, and then went into the Army, four and a half years in the Army. And then I went into the Bell system, Bell Telephone. And uh, my first job was with the, um, a new service they were providing called the Mobile Radio Telephone Service. That was the forerunner of today's cell phone. That's right. Yeah, so I was there for 31 years. Did they take care of you? Did you get a pension? Oh, yeah, I'm still on pension. Mm -hmm. How long have you been in Tucson? 40 years. Uh, I worked at Fort Huachuca for four years, and I got sand in my shoes. 
so I came back. <laughs> That's a good answer. I like that. On your last birthday, how many candles were on the cake? <laughs> Too many to count. <laughs> if you could go back and talk to young Gordon, would you have any advice for him about how to live his life? Be positive. You seem like a pretty positive guy to me. I used to belong to the Optimist Club. How do you think that has benefited you? How has being optimistic helped? Well, if there's anything you can't do, if you can't do anything about it, just forget it. Don't, don't dwell on it. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Gordon, it was nice to meet you. Okay, thank you, sir. Helen Musselman, and I've lived in Tucson since 1945. You are pretty well known to our listeners because of a radio story we did recently about your motorcycle shop. Yeah, and Honda did a story on me in the, on the shop, too. They call me Helen on Wheels. <laughs> <laughs> How much are you still working? I work five days a week. Why don't you take it easier? I just like to go in and talk to different people. Different people come in to see me because they know I'm, I'm there, and they come in and visit with me. And have you got friends in the Tucson biker community? Yeah, uh-huh. I made a speech at the Goldwing convention this past year. They always like to have me come and make a speech. <laughs> and what's something that you told them? Do you, do you offer told, them any I kind of them, advice? I told them about uh, when we uh, came from Douglas to Tucson to start our business and how long it took us. <laughs> took us a whole day because we came in a 1924 Chevrolet touring car <laughs> and the thing blew a rod before we got to Bisbee. <laughs> so my husband got out and took the rod and tied it up so it would, wouldn't go up and down. And then we chug chugged in Bisbee and we got stuck on the hill coming up out of Bisbee and uh, we backed into a driveway and let the thing cool off. And he says, you might have to push. So he drove out of the driveway and started up the hill, and he says, come on, come on. So I had to run up the hill and get, in the, get on the running board and get in the car. <laughs> they thought that was the greatest story they'd ever heard. <laughs> well, have you got anything to tell us about how you've seen Tucson change in the time you've been here? It's, streets has all changed. And, the growth has changed tremendous because when we first came to Tucson, uh, we used to go out and ride motorcycles just out on North Stone just a little ways because it was all desert. Later on in 63, we, we opened up another store on 22nd and Cove, and that was desert beyond Cove Road. And now that's all built up. And just, Tucson has really changed. Well, I think our community has been better for having you in it, Helen. So it was really nice to meet you today, and I hope you have a good day here. Thank you. I'm Don Davis, retired colonel from the Army. And uh, I'm here just to join the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you're being honored here today, though, because how old were you on your last birthday? 100. (laughs) I'll I'll have another one uh, Soon. Well, I heard that you still ride bicycles around. Yes, I have a ride every morning and uh, keep my knees going. <laughs> <laughs>
These are the only problems I have, and that isn't really a bad problem. I'm blessed to be able to, to do it. Well, how much of a bike ride do you take? Where do you ride? Uh, I ride around the Tucson Country Club Estates, and uh, we've got a little pattern there. I have no problem with traffic. <laughs> well, that's good. Um, and do you wear a helmet? No, I don't, because it, the traffic is almost non-existent. Okay. So I uh, don't have any trouble with it. If you had a chance to give yourself advice, to go back and give a young Don some advice about life, can you think of anything you'd want to tell him? No, just keep smiling. <laughs> yeah, I managed to uh, two wars, plus a small war, <laughs> and uh, I was very fortunate to uh, succeed in the Army. Well, thank you, Don. Thank you. We'll start with, who are you? <laughs> Millie O'Day. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Oklahoma and Texas. I'm from Texas, Fort oh. Worth. <laughs> Abilene. Oh, yeah. Mulberry Street. <laughs> <laughs> it was deep sand back in those days. Yeah, it's still kind of sandy over there. What brought you to Tucson? My husband. We came through here, we had gone back to Oklahoma to visit friends and family, and we stayed over in Tucson, and he said, how would you like to live here? And I said, it doesn't make any difference to me where I live. <laughs> so we opened a furniture store here in Tucson, and here I am. <laughs> and that was what you did for a living? Was it the working at the furniture store? Yes, mm -hmm. but I worked at the Douglas Aircraft and um, I worked at the school, too. Mm -hmm. What kind of advice would you want to give young people today? Do you have anything that you'd like to say? Well, <laughs> I just got through telling my daughter that I'm going to wake up some morning shortly and go back to being what I was like before. I can walk and everything. <laughs> the only thing... I still have it up here, but I, my legs just don't work. Yeah. But who needs legs anyway? <laughs> well, I met a gentleman over there named Don, and he rides a bicycle. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's in good shape. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, when I'm 101, maybe I'll take up bicycle riding. <laughs> I don't have to wait too long. I'm coming up a hundred in a couple of weeks. Oh, so you're you're still in the double digits. <laughs> yeah, you're one of the youngsters today. <laughs> well, I think it's nice they let you in anyway. Okay. All right. You did okay. a great job, Millie. You're fantastic. We just heard from Irma Kiros, Anna Rutherford, Gordon Cheeseman, Helen Musselman, Don Davis, and Millie O'Day. They attended the Pima Council on Aging's 31st Annual Salute to Centenarians. You can see photos online at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. 
I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.